I hope you're enjoying a year of polygamy a year later. As a reminder, I'll only be updating the month of June 2016 with six episodes. This is part two of six. Someone mentioned the other day that I need to change the name of the podcast to Years of Polygamy, which I love. But I'm glad to bring you an update every year. Please consider a monthly subscription to the podcast to keep the content alive and going strong. You can donate at yearofpolygamy.com and don't forget to share the podcast with your friends. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and we are bringing you one of six of the episodes of Year of Polygamy a year later. I'm really excited to talk to someone who knows about this experience firsthand. Her name is Brenda Nicholson, and she left the FLDS about four years ago. Brenda, can you say hello? Hi, this is Brenda. I'm glad to be here. So, Brenda, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Okay. Um, so, my parents actually joined the FLDS. They were converted to it when I was a baby. Um, I was actually born in California. And then they moved to Utah when I was, before I was a year old. Um, so the FLDS is all that I ever knew. But we, because we converted and so many of the families that are part of it go back generations and are all related to each other, we were possibly not as involved in things because we were kind of just our own little thing until we started going to school. Now, when you say converted, did you convert from the LDS church or what did you convert from? Yes, they converted from the LDS church. Okay, I interrupted you. So what else were you saying? Oh, I was just saying that um, because we weren't related to the other people, we were kind of just our own our own thing just as our family until we started going to school up at the Jeff School, Alta Academy. You were living at Salt Lake at the time, so you weren't a cricker, as they say, at least not then. Yes, we were living in Salt Lake. So talk to me about your childhood growing up FLDS in Salt Lake. Um, Like I was saying, we didn't really know very many other people, and so to the mo- for the most part, we just were at home. My mother homeschooled us, and we did play with the neighbors a little bit under very strict rules. They were never allowed to come into our house. We weren't allowed to go to their yard or in their houses. Um, But for the most part, we just played with each other, which when you have 10 kids, there's plenty of people to play with. It was an interesting experience, though, to be that much different from everyone else in the neighborhood. We got teased a lot. We got called names. We got, you know, people would yell plagues at us and stuff. So in that way, it was, you basically, we grew up knowing that we were different. And um, I wouldn't say it was necessarily a bad childhood. We were just very poor and very isolated from other people. Now, do you know why your parents converted and about what time period? So my dad worked at the Boeing factory in California, and I had not realized this until he was telling me the story years ago. But apparently outside of the Mormon church, Alma is a woman's name. And so he saw a, he was the janitor, and he saw a time card 
that had the name of Alma Thomas on it. And so he thought this must be another Mormon church member. So he thought he'd stick around and wait for this guy to come clock out so he could meet him. And when he came, it turns out he actually was a member of the FLDS. And so that's who introduced my father to the idea of it. And I honestly can't tell you what convinced them to join that. Um, I never really asked. I make a lot of assumptions, but um, I think polygamy just appealed to my father. They joined up. Okay, so you were about four years old. You grow up. Talk to me about what happened when you turned eight. Um, a lot of, well, most of the things that were taught and the ordinances and stuff that they do in the FLDS are just the same as the mainstream LDS church. You get baptized when you're eight. We were supposed to memorize the 13 articles of faith before then. And, and we were taught a lot about how, you know, once we were baptized, we would then be held accountable for everything that we did. And so I was baptized when I was eight in the baptismal font up in the basement of Rule and Jeff's home. And at that point, especially in Salt Lake, then the father would be the one that actually performed the baptism. And then there were other um, churchmen there that were witnesses and helped with the confirmation and such. So when I was eight, I got baptized. Now, did you attend the Alta Academy? I did, yes. I started there in seventh grade. I was homeschooled up till that point, And then I went there until I graduated from high school there. It's kind of a funny thing. Once I left and I decided I wanted to go to college, um, I had my diploma from the school. And, you know, it, it has a picture of a three-in-one on it, and it's signed by Rulin Jeffs and Warren Jeffs. And, um, but they wouldn't accept that at schools. So I had to get my GED, and I, I remember thinking, well, it's signed by two men that spoke for God. What more do they need <laughs> to know that I should be able to you know, that I did high school, but yeah, it's fascinating. nothing else. When you show up with that, people then don't really question where you're from. Yeah. And so when you decided to go to college, were you, you were still faithful FLDS? Oh no, that was after we left. Um, they would not, it was not, um, you weren't allowed to go to college. Okay. Yeah. That's there were I mean. a few, there were a few who did, Almost the, about the only girls that went to college were as if they were going to go into nursing. Um, but it just was not something that was looked on. Education was not important and especially not college. So talk to me about what happens after um, you attend the Alta Academy. What does your life look like as you become a teenage and young adult woman in the FLDS? So when I, when I, after I graduated from high school, I worked for a church run company machine shop, did all kinds of jobs there. And then when I was 19, I got married and I still worked for about a year after that until my first baby just got too big to come to work with me. And then I quit and stayed home with my, as I had more children. And I, I actually did a lot of work from home to try to help um, support the family. And we were still living in Salt Lake at that point. So, I don't know, I guess life wasn't 
for me, life wasn't as stressful at first at that point because we were kind of just, I mean, you could go to the store. Life was somewhat normal. Talk it, to me about when it got stressful. When did it start to get become stressful? I would say around, well, leading up to the year 2000, we started to have more and more kind of doomsday teachings and everything seemed very ominous. And, you know, according to what former leaders had said, then the year 2000 was going to be the time when the earth would be changed and we would have to be prepared and worthy to be lifted up off the face of the earth and the destructions would happen. And for one thing, those are that's terrifying because once, I mean, it was scary enough as a child, but as I got older and I had my own children, basically a lot of the things they talked about was terrifying, you know, wars and people that say that people were going to try to come after us and they'd want to kill us. And, and it's one thing to be, to have that fear and everything for yourself. But as you start having these little children, it was terrifying, hoping that you'd be worthy and that you were teaching them well enough that they could be protected and then they started getting really strict on not having you know watching any movies or tv it had kind of always been something you weren't supposed to do but it was allowed and they started telling us we shouldn't be going on any kind of vacations or camping and we started being asked to donate you know at first it was half your check and then sometimes they'd want your whole check and we were never that well to do anyway, and that really started hurting financially. And that, in connection with the fears and the worry of trying to be prepared and righteous enough to be lifted up and protected, it just seems like there there was so little left in life, and it was just all fear. And then the next thing that happened was they we were told that, that God said we all had to gather up and move to Short Creek. And the reason behind it was that the Olympics were coming to Salt Lake and that was bringing all kinds of horrible, sinful, wicked people and that God was going to destroy the Salt Lake Valley, especially as a punishment for the Olympics. Before we get into that and what it was like for you in the Crick, I want to talk about being an FLDS woman because one thing I've learned about doing this series is it's easier to talk to men who have left or men who are currently in but it's really hard to talk to women. There's a cultural thing about women talking yeah. and speaking out. And so I really appreciate you coming. And I really want to get inside your head, if you can remember what it's like to be a faithful believer. Um, and you talked about fearing for your kids a little bit. But I remember growing up in the LDS church, and I sometimes, you know, would say prayers that the end would come, that it would just end. And yeah. I just want to kind of get into your head of, what it felt like to be a woman and to be faithful and sort of the things you thought about, the things you prayed about and what that looked like to you, if that makes sense. It does. Um, well, to start with, uh, you know, as a girl in the FLDS, you know that you have very few choices as far as basically the only thing you're ever taught to hope for and to prepare for is to be a mother in Zion. You, you never have the idea that you're going to have a career or an education or anything and that you need to be ready and willing and actually happy to live polygamy. And as a young girl, my parents, my father didn't get a second wife until after I was married. 
And as a child, you kind of look at that and you think, oh, that would be awesome. Because when my mom's busy, wouldn't it be awesome if you had a bunch of other moms that you could just go ask to help you? Or, you know, maybe my mom won't let me do that, but there's this other mom that's a lot more easygoing. And so as a child, not understanding the dynamics of a relationship or anything, it seemed like it might be kind of cool. And I was convinced that I was going to be such a good sister wife. And, and, you know, we were told that in heaven, you had to have, man had to have at least three wives to make it into the highest degree of heaven. And that in heaven, it was just complete and utter happiness. So I thought, well, that means that it should be able to be that way on earth if we just do our part. And I was determined that I was going to just be the most awesome, obedient sister wife. And then I got married and it's amazing how your perspective changes when all of a sudden you think about sharing your husband with other women. Once you get an idea of what that actually even means. Quick question. Were you allowed to court your husband and fall in love with him or was your marriage assigned? No, no. In the FLDS, all the marriages are assigned. It's not allowed to court. There were some people who did, and for a while they would allow you to, if you're determined you want to get married, they would allow you to get married, and they'd tell you to go get a civil marriage. And if you stayed faithful and came to church and showed that you really wanted to still be involved, then after a year they would give you a church ceiling. But that was not the rule. You weren't allowed to court. Which brings up another thing. I think if you could talk to any girl involved in it, at least secretly, they had like their little blacklist of people that they just hoped and prayed God would not make them marry. And a lot of them ended up marrying people that they really didn't want to and that they never really loved, which was something I didn't comprehend completely until shortly before I left because I actually did love my husband and we had a good relationship. And so some of the changes were hard for us, but that helped me to see that there were a lot of women that actually it was a relief to not be basically to not have to accommodate their husbands because they didn't even like the guy. Yeah, that um, makes sense. Once I got married, like I said, it did change. I had a lot of of fears and doubts about living polygamy and a lot of it came from just observing what went on in the families around me, watching the way the men acted and the way they treated their families. And it was definitely a, a, a game with two sets of rules. Men could do pretty much whatever they wanted and they could pick and choose who was their favorite wife. And if you were the favorite, you, you know, got all kinds of privileges. And, and I had two, I one time told my husband, I said, I don't want, I'm afraid that when you get another wife, I'm going to be set aside. Like I've seen so many first wives just kind of, you know, you're set aside. You're no longer the second wife becomes who he's doting on, who goes with him. I said, I just don't know if I could stand that. I said, and at the same time, I don't think I could stand seeing someone else be treated poorly either. Cause I'd also seen first wives who still were like queen of the castle and the plural wives became more like servants. And I was like, isn't there some way for it to be, you know, more equitable where you don't play favorites? And that all sounds really good, but that is something that I have to say I have never seen happen in reality. 
Yeah, I think most of the people that I've interviewed, their experiences would square with that. I mean, even in the best case scenarios, the most well-meaning husbands, the most accommodating sort of um, empathetic wives, it is just such a complicated, relationships are complicated anyway, just between two people. Yeah, so um, how about your relationship with God? Did you feel like a valued, like, beloved daughter of God and that that you could go to Heavenly Father and that was someone who really had your best interests in mind? That kind of depended to a great degree. Um, well, it's kind of hard to say because on to one extreme and another. On the one hand, I, I did turn to praying as a way I didn't feel like I could express verbally to anyone that I knew my fears or my doubts because even just telling someone that I, I'm worried about this or I fear this, saying anything other than, oh, I think polygamy is awesome and I just can't wait, you were looked down upon. And so, but I had so many feelings and fears going on and I felt like I had to express it somehow. I had to try to work it out and figure out how to make this work. Because according to that religion, if I wasn't able to just love it and make it work, I was going to be damned. And so I did turn to, you know, I pleaded with God to turn, you know, to make it to where I could be successful and that I wouldn't be jealous and that I could feel that that rejoicing that we were supposed to have and feel willing and anxious for my husband to have more wives. I can't say that I ever completely reached the point of feeling like that, but that's my prayer. But I also grew up very much having my self-esteem, my my self-worth, I had none. And I didn't necessarily feel a lot different with that. Basically, I I mean, I, I kind of knew in my mind, I felt like God loves everyone. He doesn't look at me and, and, and be prejudiced against me. But I never really felt like I was a person that had worth. You know, this reminds me of growing up in the LDS church, too, um, especially when I was a young mom. We moved to a new neighborhood where there were a lot of other young moms like me. And it sort of it became, I don't, it felt competitive, but competition doesn't quite feel like the right word. We just knew that we had to be the happiest and, you know, the most upbeat about mothering and the best at it and sort of the most creative with the cleanest house and the cutest house and the best cooking. And if we weren't, then we were somehow, we were, we were treated okay. We were pitied a little bit, but maybe we didn't get invited to the same play dates and things like that. And it sounds like that you had a similar culture, but it really depended on how happy you could seem or pretend to be with being a plural wife. Is that true? Yeah, I would say so. Absolutely. And you know, for you in your situation, you, you had that feeling and whether it, I'm sure it wasn't something that was ever necessarily voiced, but you just knew that basically you were all judging each other on these impossible goals, really. And ourselves. And ourselves. And our, exactly. And ourselves. And I think it's the same thing only in polygamy. That's right in your house. You don't, you can't go to your husband as well. At least I know my husband loves me and he understands if the house isn't perfectly clean, depending on your position in the relationship, you might have sister wives who 
for whatever reason, are looked at as more worthy and more accomplished and better saintly people, and you really had no one to be on your side, so to speak, because maybe the husband didn't agree or he has his favorite wife and you just can't do anything right. And so you have no you have nowhere to go to get away from it. It's right there in inside your house every day. That feeling of competition and you know, I remember being told, Oh, there is no competition in plural marriage. We're all equal and I thought, you can say that all you want, but I have seen the inside of these homes. I've seen these relationships. And it's just natural you especially when you're having to share your husband with however many other women, you always feel like you have to try to do something a little bit better. Do you have to do something to get noticed? You have to do something to be worthy of him wanting to spend time with you. And for some women, like my mother as an example, I look at her and I think, I don't know what she possibly could ever have done different to earn my father's love and respect. And it did her no good. She was basically the live-in slave after he got more wives. And yet he had other wives that could do anything and and they could do no wrong. And that was one of the things I really struggled with is I felt like my my salvation, my position, you know, the people that had control over my life, I didn't feel like I had any control. It didn't matter what I did. I couldn't change how people viewed me or where I would end up. Did your husband ever get assigned more wives? No, he didn't. His family also converted to the church, to the FLDS, from the LDS. About, I think it was the same year that my parents did. And the way it kind of worked is if you were someone who converted and you weren't one of who was considered, you know, like the elite families, they usually wouldn't give you plural wives when you were very young. You know, if you were from an elite family, a guy could end up with two or three wives by the time he's 30. If you weren't, you might be lucky to ever get a second wife or a third wife. And and that might not be until you're in your forties or fifties. So because we were both children from families who converted and we weren't from elite families or anything they didn't assign him a second wife when we were younger and then when Warren Jeffs got arrested in 2006 there have been no marriages performed since that time which I think is what saved us you know that's been 10 years now so we spent the last six years in the church with no marriages other and had Warren not been arrested, I really think that he would have been given more wives. My husband would. Now I want to talk to you about that because the only thing I can really relate to on this is in the LDS church is there is this, it's the same sort of competition that we as women face, but sort of with men, the idea of who can be called to a bishop. If you're in your thirties and you're a bishop, that's a big deal. And people think you're on the fast track to the general authorities. And, and we know we're not supposed to give praise for that or seek attention for that or want that, but it's secretly kind of understood that that, wow, that person's really accomplished. And I remember when I first got married to my husband, realizing fairly quickly that he was not going to be the spiritual giant. And Mm -hmm. 
that was a big thing amongst my friends who, you know, who was marrying the right priesthood holder, who was going to be a bishop someday, who was going to be a stake president, which is really gross when you think back on it. But I knew, oh, yeah. <laughs> I knew pretty quickly that he wouldn't be. So I knew pretty quickly that he wouldn't be. And I remember feeling a sense of disappointment because we wouldn't have that sort of status. And, and maybe what did that mean about me if he couldn't? But I was also really relieved because my friends whose husbands were bishops, they were completely absent from their lives. So did you feel similar, that sort of sense of disappointment, but also relief? Absolutely. because And it's just like what you're saying. You know, if you had friends who got given a plural wife, you know, maybe you got married about the same time and they're given a plural wife, that was absolutely a status symbol. It was like, okay, they have, they're better people. And for all of the public talk about this isn't a competition or whatever, whatever, absolutely in everyone's minds and the way people were treated, that all did matter. And just like you said, on the one hand, you feel like, boy, look at brother, whoever, he's about, you know, he and his first wife are about our same age, and it's just my husband and me, and he has four wives now. You know, is he going to, he's obviously moving up the food chain really fast, and, and, and those same things. Does my husband not have another wife because I haven't been truly willing in my heart for that to happen? Because, you know, you believe that, God sees all things and he's the one directing it. And so if you don't have more wives, there must be a reason for it. And so that kicks in all those doubts. But you're also at battle with that. The absolute truth is you wouldn't care if it never happened because you don't really want him to have another wife. And it's terrifying. You know it's going to happen or it has to for you to be exalted. But when you start thinking about the day-to-day realities of what that's going to mean, you don't mind putting that off as long as possible. And here's the crazy thing to me. You know, I talked to Jeremy Tucker from the Kingstons, who he said, and I think that this is so wise, especially because he figured this out at 18 years old. He figured out that he would never be a big you know, man in his church. He, he said he was born to be a grunt worker, and he realized that at 18. And I feel, while that's sad, I think that's pretty wise for a kid to figure that out because I have seen grown men in the LDS church go their entire lives into um, old age believing that they would be a great, you know, apostle or yeah. general authority. And even my grandfather, who was a bishop, I remember him crying, crying to me one time because the stake president had come to his house and my grandpa was getting older and had some memory problems and the state and he wasn't there for the stake president and he cried and cried because he just knew that the stake president was going to call him to be a bishop and because he wasn't home he had missed that and of course that's not what would have happened at all but it just shows that men you know that means so much to them and and I remember it occurring to me like wait a minute the numbers don't work that way it's just most men are never going to be bishop most men are never going to be stake president and it's the same thing with polygamy. The numbers just don't work out that way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, in my college classes this last semester, I took an English course, and we were each supposed to choose a social justice issue, and then that's what we would, you know, all the assignments throughout the semester, you would gear towards that social justice issue. And so I chose abuse within polygamy, and... 
So I, I, well, and you, you know, you're supposed to do like this research paper. And I realized there is almost nothing out there. If anyone was trying to figure out any facts about it, there's nothing to find. And the one thing I did is I did a search on um, just population numbers. And, you know, as far back as I could see, it's pretty much 50-50 split at any time throughout history. And so I actually made up this little video thing where I put, you know, the little symbols for boys and girls. And to try and give it more visual, showing what happens if you've got a society that's going to generally be 50-50, you know, if you end up with this man takes this many wives, this man takes this many wives, there's a whole lot of men that there are no, there's just no girls available. And so that creates an issue that somehow has to be addressed. And when I was in the church, I used to be so offended by this term lost boys and as though the church was actually trying to get rid of boys. That was just insane. Now that I'm on the other side of it, I can see that that is absolutely what was happening. And they kind of had to, you know, even if every man had two wives, that's half the population that can't have one. Yeah. And, and that's a lot of people. You need to send me that link so we can put that video up. That would be a great resource for this podcast. And I, I've talked about this before in the series, but there's this great dialogue article that somebody did in the 90s, I think, where they came up with the demographics of heaven. And it was based on this idea that, you know, polygamy is going to be essential in the next life because there's not enough righteous spirits, young men, and, you know, there's more mm-hmm. women than men and all of this. Well, they took, they took infant mortality rates of, you know, babies that had died before age eight. And it was overwhelmingly, um, throughout history, like billions more little baby boys, right? And so they Uh were saying, so this idea of like this inequity of gender in heaven is going to actually skew towards, you know, women having multiple husbands rather than the other way around, which I think is interesting. Yeah. So, So talk to me about, um, when it, well, actually talk to me about what it was like to have uh, the YFC ranch raided and, and Warren picked up and taken to prison and all of that when things just start going crazy. So we were living in Las Vegas when the raid happened at the ranch. And I remember, you know, we knew that there was somewhere that people had gone. We knew that Wendell Nielsen had gone and Fred Jessup and... They had gone somewhere, and we were told they had gone to redeem Zion and that they were preparing a place for us, and as we were worthy, we could go there. But we didn't know, at least I had no idea where it was or anything. And so that was like throwing everything wide open. You're like, oh, my gosh, they've built this whole huge community. And now look at what's happening. And, of course, we were all, well, I can speak for myself, you know, I was praying so hard that our family would be worthy to go on to these better places and that our family could all go as a unit because we, you know, all around we saw where there's one person to disappear out of this house or a father would go away for years or one of the mother and a couple of her kids. And I just couldn't stand the thought of having my little family torn apart like that. And so when the raid happened, we watched the little videos that the church put out and whatever. And I can remember thinking and feeling guilty about thinking it, but thinking that I was so glad that 
we hadn't qualified yet, that we weren't part of that. And how horrible would it be to have someone take your children away from you like that? And at the time, Seth Jeffs, who actually is, I went to school with him, and he is my brother-in-law, but he, he said that they were going to put up these websites, and they were going to make these videos, and they were going to use that basically as propaganda to pull at the heartstrings of the people and turn public opinion in their favor. And it absolutely worked, but I can remember I was just so upset that they would do this. They could take these little children away. And then years later, when we were at the point of leaving the church, and for me, it came down to that they were taking children away from their mothers by being judged unworthy, and they were splitting families apart. But I can remember the thought crossing my mind that for how horrible I felt about the raid taking place and the children being taken from their mothers, at least in that raid, those people that were involved could still pray with all their might to Heavenly Father to deliver them from the government who they we've always viewed as our enemies. And now, what did these children and mothers have? Who could they turn to? Because according to their belief system, what they're being told, God was the one taking their children away. And I just remember it was... It was so heart-wrenching to me as I saw people around me giving up their children, not knowing where half their children were, not being able to have any contact with them. And it did bring back a lot of the memories and the emotion about the raid. And I thought, these people are no, you know, the, the leaders of this church are no better than how I viewed the government at that time. They are taking children from their mothers. Such an interesting and, parallel. I never, I've never thought of that before, but you're absolutely right. And I remember hearing when Warren got arrested and it was just like this devastating blow because he had said if the government, you know, the government wants to arrest him because he's the most righteous man on earth. And if they did, they would kill him. If they caught him, they would kill him. So when he got arrested, I was just devastated and just waiting to hear, you know, because he was just like Prophet Joseph and they martyred him. And and I remember thinking, this is just terrible. How can this happen? And then he was in jail in purgatory in southern Utah. And it was interesting to find things out after we left the church. But at the time, we were told that he was in the hospital and that the jail people or someone had poisoned his food, nearly killed him, and he was in the hospital. And we were all supposed to pray for him to recover and and be healed and renewed. And then I find out years later that, that what actually happened at that time, that's what we were told, but it was when he tried to commit suicide and he had nearly hung himself. But it's a sort of same narrative like Joseph Smith, whose food was poisoned in the jail and Yes. Kind of the same Very thing. much so. So talk to me and it about... Does go ahead. Bring that, it does bring those connections to your mind, and I don't know whether he did that on purpose, but it worked. You know, you're thinking, this is just like Joseph. So, and 
And then you find out it was all a lie, really. People often ask, how can the church still be run with Warren in prison? But you spent several years with Warren in prison and you were still faithful. So what was that like? How was the church being run? What was going on while Warren was in prison? So while he was in prison, his brother Lyle pretty much was the next guy. I mean, he stepped up. He was then the bishop. We would get, sometimes we would have recordings that they would play where he had called um, from the prison and they recorded it and they would play it like in church or they'd call us together to listen to it. There was a couple of times that we were at least told that he called in and was talking to us. I found out later that some of that they had actually recorded it and edited it first and then played it to the people. And then there was a lot of revelations that they would read, you know, this is what he's saying. And so he was still, though he wasn't in the room, he was still very much controlling everything. And the reality is before he was arrested, he had spent at least a year, I think more like a year and a half, where he was hardly there anyway, and he would call in. So as far as being there in the room, it wasn't a lot different than what had gone on before then. And by that point, we had all been told, you know, you're never supposed to watch any TV. You should never listen to the radio. You never look at the newspaper. And we were told that he had been jailed on lies of apostates and that he was falsely accused which if and at that point I didn't know, even know what he was accused of most of us did not but even if you were to hear what he was accused of you already had in the back of your mind oh he was so inspired that they were ahead of that to let me know that he was falsely accused so I don't have to worry about what I hear because I know the truth and so for most of the people out there they probably Still don't even know what he is in prison for, much less that they would believe it if they heard. What about all the people who have been victims of his, who have been abused by him? Do you think that they feel a sense of relief, or do you think that they somehow have internalized the shame onto their own righteousness and wickedness? I am sure that they have internalized it, and there's a good chance that he made sure that they felt guilty for that. I would imagine that just being human, that everybody, that you know, anyone who was being abused by him feels a sense of relief that he can't do it. Even if they believe that there's nothing wrong with it, your soul tells you there's something wrong. And it's not something you can just set aside and go, no, that was okay. It causes something in your psychology to you just can't have that happen and believe it's okay basically but at the same time I have a hard time believing that there's not more people there who may be carrying on that type of abuse it may not be the same people but I think that it happens enough that there are some people that actually think that's just normal that that's just the way life is because they've never been taught anything different they've never been even taught about their own bodies their own anatomy they don't know they only know what people tell them so talk to me about when you decided to leave what led to that and what what was what leaving was like for you as things got 
more strict. It started to just feel like they were changing things that didn't even go along with the scripture that we had grown up being taught was true. And then I believe it was somewhere in 20, around 2010 or maybe 2011, they had, they told everyone they were going to have reconfirmations and that in preparation for that, every person was supposed to write a comprehensive confession letter. Basically, the way I looked at it, it was like a blacklist of everything you felt like you had ever done wrong in your life. And it wasn't even that it was, well, I'm going to feel write down the things I feel like I still need to repent of. Even if you felt like you had repented of it and been forgiven, you had to write it all down, everything you had done. And, you know, looking back now, it's almost silly for me to have felt like I was guilty of anything in my life. But compared to those standards, you're like, oh, I haven't, I haven't kept sweet enough. I, I've had these doubts. I haven't really, really prayed for my husband to get another wife because I didn't mind that he didn't. And you feel guilty. But I can remember feeling that this was unfair to a degree because they were wanting a list of everything you did wrong. And I felt like me and God had an understanding. And a lot of the stuff that I had had struggles with, I felt like I had worked hard and overcome it. And I had prayed and felt like that I knew that I had been forgiven. And I, you know, to not have the context of the circumstances that were surrounding you or what happened that caused you to do it or understanding what was in your heart or how you had worked hard and you know I felt like I was at peace with God I had lived a good life but to write all that out on paper and know that men that you know are going to read it without knowing any of that without having the understanding that God had of why I did things and, and who I really was and then also the really the fear or the at least uncomfortable feeling that once you put that on paper and put it out there, who all is going to read it? And how is it going to be used against me? Are people going to read my confession letter and treat me worse because, oh my gosh, look at these horrible things she has done. And so that was a big step in me starting to to doubt how all of this, how did that apply to the religion and the scripture as we knew it? I just didn't see a reason for it. And then they started talking about instituting the United Order. And you had to go and be interviewed and then be judged whether you were worthy or not. And if you, you had to be, everyone had to be through their interviews by midnight on December 31st of 2011. Our family was not called to go to be judged until December 31st, and we spent most of our day, there was so many people there working our way up through the line, through the different rooms that they had as you advanced toward the bishop's office. And when we finally got to the room, and it was our turn, they had, you had to go in the right order. So my, one of my sons had been given the priesthood, so he went first because he was a priesthood holder, and then I went next, and then the rest of the children in order of age. And my father was one of the three men who were judges, 
And I just remember walking in that room. This was supposed to be, you know, about as close to God as you could get because these men were representing God and they were there to do this righteous judgment. But when I walked in the room, it was like it felt so dark and oppressive. I just felt like this is not, this isn't right. There's something going on here. This is not, does not feel heavenly at all. But my husband and myself and one of our sons, they found unworthy. And our daughter and two of our other sons, they found worthy. And at that point, it started tearing our family apart just because those who were worthy had separate meetings to go to. They had separate assignments and they were told that they weren't allowed to tell us as their unworthy parents what they were doing, what they were reading, who they were, anything. And that really worried me because I didn't have a lot of trust in a lot of the men there. And I didn't like the idea of my children not being allowed to tell me if something was uncomfortable or what was going on. But the real line that came that I just couldn't go there was when they started saying, well, when they announced that those who were worthy could no longer live with those who were unworthy. And that meant that they were going to take those three of my children that had been deemed worthy and take them away from me. And because my husband wasn't worthy, he couldn't even have any say. If the father of the household was worthy, he could then have some say in where he wanted his unworthy family to get sent. But where the, we as the parents were not worthy, they were just going to take them. And there was a good chance we wouldn't even know whose house they were put in and we wouldn't be allowed to have contact with them anymore. And I saw it happening all around. And it was just the most horrific thing. And I thought, there is no way that I'm not worthy of my own children. And I knew that I couldn't stay there and feel safe. I really worried that my father would show up one day and take my children because they believed that once they were in the United Order, they belonged to God. That my children would go to one of their meetings that I wasn't allowed to go to and never come home. And that was the point where we decided something is seriously wrong and we're not sure about anything other than we have to get out of here. And so that's when we started making plans and figuring out how to even do that. So what was that like? So what what did that mean to leave? What did that mean for your family? Number one, it meant that we absolutely understood that once people realized that that was even how we felt, much less once we left, that they would we would be vilified. We would be, you know, everyone in the church would understand that we were apostates and traitors to God. And we had all been taught very strongly that you should leave apostates alone severely. You never talk to them. Basically, you look at them as though they, they'd be better off if they were dead. There were people who even, you know, if they had a child that left the church, they would take a Sharpie marker and black them out in all of their family pictures or cut them out. Um, so we knew that when we left... That was it. We were on our own. Our families wouldn't talk to us. Basically, everyone and everything that had been our entire lives was going to be gone. And, you know, my husband had never 
gone to a job interview. He had never written up a resume. And there was, you know, at that point, the church controlled everything. They told you where to live, where to work. So we were faced with trying to figure out everything involving our lives and get things in place so that we could physically leave. And we felt like we had to physically, they had us in half of a duplex that really wasn't big enough for our family. And a lot of the people that lived around there were just, the children were really cruel and bullying to my children. And there was a lot of um, animal torture and stuff that I just didn't want my children around at all. And the stuff we dealt with while we were still looked at as faithful I could only imagine what they would do and how they would treat us once they realized we were no longer agreeing and part of the church. So we just knew we had to get out of there. So you guys have been out for four years. How are you adjusting? One of the most painful things for LDS people is to sort of unpack the history and the doctrine. So what is that like for people leaving the FLDS? Do they follow Mormon sites? How, how do you guys come to peace with sort of reconciling that you're not the wicked ones, that maybe your church was making mistakes instead? Um, well, to be honest, when we first left, we still thought that Warren Jeffs was the prophet and that what it was is he was in jail and he just didn't realize what his brother Lyle was doing to the people. He didn't know the horrible conditions that we were in. And... So we actually believe we were still being faithful to the true essence of what the religion had been and that these people were taking everybody off a cliff. But then once we got out and had the Internet and talked a little bit to some people who had left, um, we started looking and read through some of the record that Warren Jeffs had kept that they got in the raid down in Texas. Having grown up knowing him, I mean, he was my high school teacher. We absolutely knew his voice. We knew the way he talked. We knew the kind of things he did. And once I listened to that, there was no doubt in my mind that that was Warren Jeffs doing unspeakable things. And then reading through some of the record, it was just, it was like the most devastating feeling of betrayal because all of a sudden you realize that Lyle wasn't doing anything to the people that he didn't learn from Warren that the things he had been doing to people like down at the ranch in different places for years. And at that point, you realize that I have spent my entire life deceived, believing something that was a lie and being a part of and supporting this kind of a person. And it really, it really was, it was like, you know, the bottom of the earth fell out from under you. The entire foundation we had built our lives on crumbled into pieces. And you're left just, you feel numb. And you're thinking, so who can I even trust? I thought I trusted. And not only that, you, you spent your whole life praying. And you still, even though you you've, you prayed to know to be a good person, you still, you weren't, you didn't re recognize this person as a fraud, as this horrible person. And you instantly start thinking, boy, I'm a really terrible person if I couldn't even recognize 
you know, because you're supposed to be able to recognize the spirits and whatever. Here's someone doing this, and I actually believed he was the most righteous man on earth. And so we had to just start picking through, and we went through, and for me, I just had to examine each thing. And I'd like, why, what did I believe? Okay, I believed this. Why did I believe it? My first question was, is it even scriptural? Can I find anywhere where supposedly God even told us to do this? A lot of things, you couldn't even find it anywhere. I'm like, okay, he made that up. The next question I had to ask was, is believing this going to be harmful to me or anyone else around me? And is believing this going to stop me from being able to love anyone? And is this something that I would be proud to see my children incorporate into their lives and how they treat people? And there wasn't a whole lot left by the time I sorted through all that I had believed. But what was left was things that I absolutely felt confidence and comfortable in. Okay, this is what I, this is my little pile of beliefs. This is my belief system. And nobody can take that away from me because these were the things I chose. I didn't choose them because somebody told me this is how you have to treat people or this is what you need to do. I felt in my own soul that I knew these were good things to have in your life and things that would, in my own children, they would grow up to be good, caring, industrious, honest people. And I know that different people come out and they, I know some that have gone to the LDS church. I know some that have gone all different directions. Um, for me personally, I feel like I've had enough religion to last me several lifetimes. And I just intend to do everything I can to help people and love them and be honest and work hard. And the way I see it is when I die, if there's a God, I trust that that will be enough, that that will be acceptable. And if living that kind of a life isn't enough and isn't acceptable, then that's not really the kind of God I'm interested in being with forever or serving. It's, it's a lot like the point that I came to as things kept getting more crazy, where I felt like if this is only preparing us for greater light, supposedly, and for greater requirements, and what you're doing is tearing families apart and outlawing love, if that basically, if that is heaven, then give me hell, because this is not something that I feel like is appropriate and it's not something I want to be a part of. And so that made it. When we left, it made it a little bit easier to come to terms with all of that. I didn't feel like I was turning traitor. I didn't feel in my heart that I had done anything wrong. I felt that I had taken steps to come out of that and be a better person and, you know, keep the pieces that were good, keep the pieces that would make me a, a good person and that were good to, t to teach and pass on to my children and so it wasn't, I've never felt guilty or felt like I was an apostate, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that was beautiful and very well put. And I, I like how you talk about claiming it yourself. That's I, also something that's important because I said this before and I'll say it again. I don't think polygamy is the canker in this group. I don't think that 
a lot of the doctrine is a kinker in other groups. I think it's adherence to one leader and being told what to believe and and having a relationship with the church first before God that that harms people a lot. So yeah. We don't have a lot of time, but I want to talk to you about two two more things. I want you to tell us kind of an update on what's going on with the federal cases now, which I know is a broad question, but you've been following those. You've been live tweeting those and going down to the courthouse. And then I want you to talk about sort of the personal project um, and how maybe listeners can help you. So start with the with what's going on with the federal government. Okay. Um, I actually found out today that Thursday the 9th, which is tomorrow at this point, Lyle has having a third hearing, a detention hearing, and so I will be going to that in the morning. Other than that, I know that they've pushed the start date for the actual trial out to October because they have so much evidence to go through and coordinate and make sense and make a good case. Beyond that, I'm not sure what all they've got going on. It has definitely been a very interesting process to witness and to go sit in the courtroom and and listen to how both sides, you know, the things they have to say and, and the things that are being said to defend Lyle. It's frustrating in some ways to sit in the courtroom and see people that I know get up there and I... I just have to think that they know they're lying, but it's kind of one of those um, the ends justify the means type of a thing. And they've learned to say things in a way that they're not exactly lying, but they're actually not answering the question either. And so some of that has been frustrating. So explain um, to listeners why why they're even in court to begin with. Um, it's they're there basically as character witnesses, you know, mostly. They had a lot of the FLDS, faithful FLDS members that were there to testify, to testify in Lyle's behalf. John Wayman has, he's been in business for so long that he actually has, you know, contacts through his business, vendors, customers, bankers, and those kind of people came and testified for him. But Lyle really doesn't have any kind of outside connections. That would that could vouch for him, so he had um, faithful FLDS members there, you know, to to tell the judge that Lyle just loves his family and his people mean more than life to him. And some of that's hard to not sit there and just want to laugh out loud because I know that's not true. But so I will be going to that and I'll take notes and put that up. I'm hoping that they've got enough evidence and that the judge won't be. And the jury won't be too swayed by all of their claims of um, religious freedom. In my mind, until we stop allowing religious freedom to trump human rights, there's no real freedom. And there are people that are being hurt by these practices. And about the only thing that I can see that they have any justifiable claim to as religious freedom would be the idea of polygamy, but that doesn't even cover underage marriages or forced marriage. It for sure doesn't cover child abandonment, statutory rape, welfare fraud, and all those other things, you know, like the SNAP fraud and money laundering. You can't claim that as religious freedom, and I'm hoping that people will be able to understand that by the time the trial is over. 
and that there will be some accountability and hopefully some a greater degree of freedom for the general people in the church. If those men are convicted and have to serve time, I think it will at least give the people that are left a little bit of something to think about before they just continue committing fraud. Basically, if they see that, oh, we actually could have to be accountable, maybe there'll be people that decide they don't want to be a part of it. I guess we'll have to see how that goes. As far as personally, I am trying to figure out any way that I can to help the people who are getting out. I know for myself, we were lucky. My husband and I got out together with all of our children. He was able to get a good job. And so even though it's been really hard and we left with so much debt and it's been a struggle, it's nothing compared to what a lot of the others end up going through. And I think there are probably a lot of women there that if they thought they had a way to survive when they left, they might. I have, I mean, I know women that get out, they're all alone. They have really no education. They have no job skills. But they've got a whole bunch of kids that have been through a very traumatic experience. And those kids really need their mother to be there to help them adjust. And it's a hard thing to adjust to this entirely different world to help them understand they're not wicked. They're not sinning. They're not evil for leaving the church. And so these women are in an almost impossible situation. How do they provide for their families, not just financially, but spiritually, emotionally, psychologically? And I feel like where the government has turned a blind eye for so long, this has become such a powerful thing and things have become so much worse under that that I think the government maybe needs to set up a way to help these people. If they're not going to do anything to stop it, they need to at least do something to help them survive and cope and assimilate when they decide to leave, when they say, no, this isn't what I want, because they didn't have a choice. They were born into it. And so um, I'm trying to figure out if there possibly are already resources and programs that these women could use to help them get on their feet to help them provide for their children and still be able to help them make that adjustment. In looking for things, I found a link to a called the United State of Women. It's a summit that's going on next week, um, June 13th through the 15th in Washington, D.C. It's hosted by the White House. And my hope is to meet with people there and and see if there are resources, if there are people I could talk to, or how you would even go about setting up something like that. And so basically, I'm just trying to figure out, number one, what we can do to help the people who are getting free of it, who need help to get on their feet. And then, of course, ultimately, I would love to see something change where we prevent this from happening. There's a lot of crimes that are happening that need to be addressed, that need to not be just allowed to be winked at, and especially for the children. There may be, there may be adults out there that will never see anything different. They believe so strongly they'll never let that go. But we can't just say, 
well, that's their belief. And it's okay if we let that continue generation after generation after generation, not where there's abuse and there's people that are growing up with no education. There are people that are being, they're being taken advantage of because they don't know any better. And so a huge thing is, I think there needs to be an education of of the general people to understand what really is going on in these closed societies and the true harms that it has often. And then some resources for those who do want to leave so that they feel like there's something to help them and they don't end up on the outside almost wishing they were back just because at least they knew they had food and shelter. They need some help. And we're going to have Tanya Tool on after this episode, too, so she can talk about what she's doing with holding out help. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm interested. Are you still um, trying to get funding to go to a conference? Well, it was for that um, state of women in Washington, D.C. I found out that I had been selected to go two weeks before it happened. And that's really I had no idea how expensive a destination Washington DC is especially on short notice um, and so I did set up a GoFundMe and I it's titled Ms. Brenda goes to Washington and I don't know if you've ever watched <laughs> Mr. Smith goes to Washington but that's kind of the idea and I did get fully funded on that for what I asked for and so I think it was more expensive than I had thought it would be but I think I got enough that I'm going to be okay on that Okay, if not, send us a link and we'll put it on there and listeners can throw some money your way. Okay. Well, is there good. anything else you want to let our listeners know before I let you go? All I'd say is that it would be wonderful, especially for the people that run into people from the FLDS, you know, people that live in southern Utah or whatever, to understand that these people are being taught that the Gentile world, anyone who's not faithful, the government, the police and everybody, that they are evil and that they want to destroy those people. And I think one of the biggest things that you could do if you're wanting to do something is to just stop ignoring them. I know that's kind of what I do. If I see them, I'm like, oh my gosh, look, there's some of those people and I know they're not going to want to see me, but just smile at them even and let them know that the Gentile world We don't hate them. We actually want to help. We do care. You know, so don't yell plig at them or make fun of them. But try to show them that the world is not what they've been told it is. And maybe it will help them find the bravery to speak out to someone and ask for help. Or, you know, realize that they feel more love from the Gentile world when they go to the store than they feel at home from the church. And even that could help help someone make the decision to break free. Well, thank you so much, Brenda, for speaking out and for the bravery to accomplish what you've accomplished. And I'm rooting for you. And I know all the listeners out there will be too after listening to this. So thanks again for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. If you enjoyed what you heard today, consider coming out to the Sunstone Summer Symposium on July 27th through the 30th, 2016. The conference, popularly called Mormon Comic Con, hosts hundreds of Mormons from a vast variety of belief, perspective, and lifestyle. 
That means you get to hear from Mormons like Brenda and hang out with diverse Mormons. We have several FLDS and ex-FLDS speakers this year, one being the prominently known fundamentalist leader, Winston Blackmore. He'll be speaking. You'll also hear from other Mormons like Joanna Brooks, Misha McGriggs, Gina Colvin, John DeLynn, Dan Witherspoon, Margaret Toscano, the Mama Dragons, Mormon scholars, historians, and more. You get the picture. Don't miss the biggest Mormon party of the year. Come hang out with Mormons all across the spectrum. There's no one way to Mormon. Register at sunstone.org.